guys welcome Pastor Mike. Thank you. It's, it's ironic that one of the hardest things in full-time pastoral ministry is Sunday's always coming. And no matter whether or not you have the time or you particularly are invested in the next chapter of whatever you're teaching through, you always have to have a message ready to go for that following Sunday. It's ironic that the one thing I miss about pastoral ministry is that idea of it's not just teaching the messages that I've had three months to just sit in my soul and then communicate, but to be able to fit into what's already been going on. So when Pastor Jeff told me that you guys were beginning a series, called It's Not Your Treasure to Bury, I asked him, like, I'd just love to fit into that and to be able to help further whatever it is you're trying to accomplish through that series. So um, if you weren't here last week, Pastor Jeff did set up the understanding of how we are to appreciate the lives that God has given us to steward for His glory. And so what I want to do is just a little bit of recap, and then specifically this morning, be looking at how we offer the entirety of our lives as an offering to God, not just parts of our life, not just our time or our talents or our treasure, but the entirety of who we are as human beings, our past experiences, our inner desires, our future hopes, all that we call our lives, how, to, how do we offer that up to God first so that our lives are leveraged for Him? So if you have a Bible, turn to Romans chapter 12. We're going to be in the first eight verses of Romans chapter 12, which is talking about this very thing because of all the things that we have to leverage for God's glory, uh, the greatest is life itself. So 1 Corinthians chapter 6 tells us that your lives are not your own. You were bought with a price Therefore, glorify God with your body, which is a sober judgment of the lives that we have. The fact that we have breath in our lungs and health in our bones means that regardless of how insecure we feel, regardless of how few gifts we think we possess, regardless of what we think we bring to the table, your life itself speaks but it's not your own to use any way that you want. God went to the extent to send Jesus, who became human and took on flesh, to walk among us to teach us what the good life looks like, how it is we are to leverage everything that he's given us for him. And so we're going to be looking at this big picture, but <clears throat> maybe one of the most sobering things about this is this idea that no matter what you do with the rest of your life, however long that might be, no matter what you do with the life that God has given you, the fact that you exist today brings God more joy than anything else. There's nothing you could possibly do to make God love you more or less. And there's nothing that we can do with our lives to earn that favor, which means it's all then a response 
to being perfectly loved and accepted as we are, not the idealized versions of ourselves that we'd like to be in the future. As important as that might be as a goal, who we are right now delights God the Father. And the same way that parents love to see their children, like you've seen parents with kids who take their first steps, You think like their kids discovered a cure for cancer with how excited we get watching children take their first faltering steps and then falling right back down again. You'd think they did some major life-changing thing, but it brings us such joy because it means they're growing and they're developing and we're seeing them develop new skills. That's the kind of delight that God has as a father for us. Even in our small faltering steps to figure out What does it mean to use my life for his glory? Because he's already well-pleased. This is not something that we're doing to earn that, but to work from that. So, Romans chapter 12. We're going to read the first three verses, uh, first two verses, and we'll stop for a second. Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, Holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So he starts off by urging us, therefore. Now, we're coming into a book almost towards the end in Romans chapter 12. There are 16 chapters to the book of Romans. That word, therefore, is linking together everything that just came before, which many people believe is the most comprehensive treatise on salvation. Up until this point, Paul has established sin. He's established holiness. He's established righteousness. He's established dying to self and baptism, rising to new life. He's talked about all of the work of Jesus inside of us. How it is that God entered the fabric of our lives to give us the opportunity to live for something more. And then he says, I urge you, therefore, in light of the gospel... In light of being the people of God, by God's choosing, you will live like this. Now, what's interesting is Paul, out of all people, could have used his apostolic authority to command this. And when we read through scripture, there are a good number of commands. That is, these are non-negotiables that if you are a follower of Jesus, you will do these things. But that's not the language that Paul uses. Instead of using his authority, he's inviting. I urge you. It is a gentle invitation to consider the life that you've been given and an invitation into using that life for something bigger than ourselves. Why does he do that? Because a life that is not freely offered of our own desires is not really a life that's been offered up to God completely and totally. A life where we have not chosen ourselves rather than been told by someone else to do this is not something that's a free will offering to God where we place ourselves under his authority and say, I have a lot of desires for my life. I have a lot of hopes for my life. I have a lot of things I'd like to be true. 
but I am willing to die to all of those for you to affirm what it is you've already placed in me, for you to develop the personality that you gave me, for you to leverage all of my past experiences that are full of broken glass and mistakes and redeem that into something beautiful. We're offering that up to him because the decision has to be ours. So Paul is appealing to our hearts and he says, I urge you, therefore, brothers, by God's mercy, how could we live for ourselves if he himself did not? It was all mercy that we have anything that we have. And so in light of God being that merciful to us, it seems like the most reasonable thing in the world would be to recognize clearly God has a better grasp on my life than I do. Because when I am left to my own devices, no matter how right it feels in the moment, one of the things that you gain with age and experience and maturity is the ability to look back and say, that didn't work out the way that I hoped. And so I need to invite God into this so I am able to better make those decisions in the future, knowing that he knows what's best. <clears throat> and he says, I, I urge you, I invite you to consider God's mercy that we would become a living sacrifice. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Now, Paul, this is familiar Old Testament imagery, right? Paul is intentionally appealing to the Old Testament sacrificial system, but he's also doing something that Paul does quite a bit, which is wordplay. He uses, out of all the New Testament authors, Paul uses a lot more sarcasm, a lot more metaphor, a lot more wordplay, a lot of things that he's trying to juxtapose things together that don't make sense, so it would jar our attention. And so this word living sacrifice, the word sacrifice literally means killing. So he says, you're to offer your life as a living killing, which should give us pause, like, okay, so is, are we living or are we dying? Which, which of these two is it? What he's trying to do is he's trying to use a paradox to highlight the difference between the Old Testament sacrifices and the kind of sacrifices that are pleasing and acceptable to God because of the finished work of Jesus Christ. Because this offering is not one to atone for sin, but this offering is as a response of gratitude. This offering is not to cover our sin or... Uh, something that would be more consistent with us is um, trying to make up for past mistakes by future successes, trying to, to undo past hurts by being a better person in the future. We're not trying to atone ourselves for all of our failures. We're recognizing he has already done that, and that's the essence of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. We put to death the right to live any way that we choose. And it's not popular, and it goes against much, much current teaching, even in the church, where we present the Bible as a means to help you live a better life, rather than a book that tells us what is true about God the Father and what is true about us as his children and his desires for us. So we die to ourselves every day 
which is called our reasonable act of worship. If you're using the ESV, it translates it in verse 1. This is your spiritual worship. The word spiritual is the Greek word logico, where we get our English word logic. And so what Paul is saying is it's the most logical thing in the world. It is the most reasonable thing in the world in light of this to give ourselves first to the one who gave himself to us. It's not our treasure to bury because it's not our treasure. It's not ours to just enjoy and to use and to whatever it is. Because I know there is a way to frame that idea of it's not your treasure to bury because, let's face it, we feel good when we know what we're competent in and then I'm using that gift to fuel my own sense of insecurity and fuel my own sense of needing to prove myself, which is very different than offering it to God, saying this has nothing to do with you healing my inner wounds here of what I want to be seen as. But whether or not I feel equipped or ready or good, it's yours to use however you want to use it. What's unreasonable is to be forgiven of every wrong we have ever done, cleansed entirely of sin, guilt, and shame, be given the Holy Spirit to now displace that inner dwelling of sin where now there is the possibility to live out of that Holy Spirit, to be given a future and a hope, and then tell God, I've got it. I'm good. That doesn't make any sense logically or in the heart or in the body that he would go to that length only for us to do that. Jesus offered himself as a dying sacrifice so we could offer ourselves as a living sacrifice. And I want to give you some practical ideas today of how we do that right? It's one thing to think about it conceptually. It's another thing to say, how do I do that? And what I want to preface that with is, even though you should be thinking of specific areas of your life, this is not about any one particular area. Pastor Jeff is going to go through a lot of different areas with you over the course of this series where you will be able to get more of a laser focus on that area and begin to evaluate why sometimes our stated priorities in our mind are not how we actually spend our lives. What's the disconnect there between what I think is important and what I'm actually living out of, which tells me what's actually important. So... I just had this realization as I was preparing for this message in terms of thinking about some of the priorities in my mind and what my life tells me are actually my priorities. And I remember, this was probably about eight years ago, my youngest daughter was about a year old, and I was at home on a Friday working, watching my daughter, and she wanted to play with me. And by play, she wanted me to lay down on the kitchen floor and just roll around and wrestle with her. That's what she wanted. And I did something I didn't typically do, which is I put down my work and I closed the laptop and I did it. And I sat there for an hour and a half on the floor with my daughter rolling around and laughing and talking to her. And at the end of the hour and a half, I thought that was so enjoyable why don't I do that more? 
Now, if you had asked me what my priorities with my children are at that point, I would have told you spending time with each of my children individually was a top priority. But what I discovered through that is what my actual priorities are, are spending time with my kids after my work is done. And when you're in full-time ministry, I have a whole church telling me what I ought to be working on and what I ought to be giving my time to, and it never really ends. And even if I finish that sermon or counseling session or whatever it is that I'm working on, I go home and I have house projects that I have to work on too. The, the work never ends. You never really come to the end of your to-do list, which is why the discipline of Sabbath, the discipline of playing, the discipline of all those means you press pause on whatever it is you're saying no to, to do it in the meantime, knowing that you might not be able to get back to that and God is going to have to be God in that situation. My daughter has one father. My church can have other pastors. And so that's the kind of things that allow us to evaluate what our stated priorities are versus what's actually going on in our heart that determines the way that we live our lives. So how do we offer ourselves as a living sacrifice? He says here, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. <clears throat> Because of the finished work of Jesus, our minds have been renewed to discern the will of God, to understand what God's desires for us are, and how we then set ourselves to accomplish that. Now, granted, our minds, as well as our, as well as our hearts, have been um, corrupted through the fall, but our minds, as well, of, as well as our hearts, have also been renewed by the work of the Holy Spirit that now indwells us. And so we are now able to use every faculty that God's given us to be able to leverage that for Him in the life that He's given us. Because how we live is an expression of how we think, how we feel, what we desire, what we actually believe. And so I want to encourage you to look at your life right now as it is. Because we're not just talking about stewarding gifts or talents because you are not the sum total of your gifts and talents. Please understand that. You are not just what you have to offer. I lived my entire young adulthood proving myself by learning what I was good at and excelling in that so that I could prove I'm not a slouch to myself, to the voices in my head, to every seminary professor I've ever had, to every conversation I've had in my mind with someone who's not asking that question. <laughs> True story. as if my life is the sum total of what I do. And it's interesting, I was thinking about uh, some friends that we had who moved away and aren't in our lives anymore, and when I think back of them, I don't remember things that they said or did primarily. I remember what it felt like to be in their presence, right? Think of people that used to be in your life and aren't anymore. Are, were they an unusually needy presence? Were they an anxious presence? Were they a joyful presence? It's who they were as a person 
that they brought to the table more than anything that they said or did. And thinking as we are, we're moving into a new decade, this is the decade for my family that's going to see us launching our four children into adulthood. By the end of this decade, my children will likely be married and have kids of their own and will be out of my house. And that is both terrifying and exciting and deeply sad as I think about all that we've poured into them for the last years of their life that now we're getting ri rid of them. <laughs> <clears throat> and one of my biggest questions in this stage of life is will they want to come back? Will they like me as an adult? Would they want to come back and just sit down and have dinner with mom and I because we invited them? Or are they just going to remember all the stuff that we did wrong? That's a scary season of life to be in and to think of. And when I think of that, they're, I think they're going to remember less of our parenting strategies and how gospel-centered we were, and more about what it felt like to be in our presence, which is why we are trying our best to be a receptive, hospitable presence where our children can bring the reality about who they actually are to the table without fear of repercussion, without fear of being judged, without fear of us giving them advice or the right answer instead of just listening. That's what it means to bring your life to the table, not just what you say, not just what you do, not just what our strategies are. And so Paul is saying, we have the ability to not conform ourselves to the image of the world, but be transformed by the renewal of our minds, and that by the renewal of those minds, we're able to think and feel differently about what this life that he's given us can be used for. This is about bringing the gospel to bear in our lives in every way. So I have five things that I want to just kind of walk through with you. This is, more, this is less of teaching and more of self-reflection for you. Five different areas that we can bring our, the gospel to bear on our lives. The first is that we look back to our previous experiences. We look back on the life that we've lived. Second is we look inward, our own desires, our own hopes, the things that God is doing in our own hearts. Third is that we look around the people that God has already placed in our life, our families, our church, the people that are most immediately around us. The fourth is that we look outward, those people that we don't yet know, but God is calling us to engage with. And the fifth is looking up and prayerfully determining, determining what God has for us. So five areas, it's not going to take too long. There's no such thing as a right answer here because I'm not living your life. I only know what this means for me, which is very different than what it's going to mean for you, which means the only right answer is the one that you yourself can be aware of. And I know that sometimes we are distrustful of our own hearts. We're distrustful of our own hearts. 
And it's really interesting when um, I was just at a conference yesterday and I watched everybody quickly taking notes on whatever the person on stage was saying. And maybe they would have taken notes if someone really wise in the audience said something and kind of write it down. Thank you. <clears throat> but we rarely take notes about the things that we say to ourselves. We're so quick to accept someone else's advice as uh, being an expert in the subject, and we're so hesitant to actually listen to what our own hearts and lives are telling us, because after all, that probably can't be good when that's actually the one teacher that the Spirit of God is trying to cause you to pay attention to. So this is an invitation to just consider some questions along the lines of these different areas. So first is looking back, because the first area of discernment is evaluating your past experiences. In creation, you were designed in the image and likeness of God. Your worth, your dignity, your value all come from the fact that you were made in the image and likeness of God. You are as unique as a fingerprint is. This just trips me out. When you think of the billions of people alive on planet Earth, there's only one who looks like you. And even if you have a twin who looks like you, your inner makeup is entirely different. Your experiences, the life that you've lived, the things that you used to want to do that you may have died to and know that it's probably not going to happen now. The desires you had that actually came to pass. All of those things. In redemption, Jesus saves us from our unique circumstances and sin. And so that we now have the grace to have something unique to contribute. I was thinking about this in John chapter 4 when Jesus meets the woman at the well. Does he give her a generic gospel presentation? Hey, I love you and I'm going to die for your sin one day. No, he tells her about this living water and she says, Sir, I would love this living water. And he says, Great, go call your husband and come back. I have no husband. I know you don't. You've had five husbands and the man you're living with now is not your husband. Now, Jesus isn't doing some parlor trick to show her his omniscience. He is actually meeting her deepest need with greatest compassion. We don't know what it is she was looking to these husbands for. It could have just been general first century safety and security. Or it could just be human loneliness. And she wanted a warm body to lay down, to it, lay down with at the end of the night. We don't know. But whatever it is, was what her heart was desiring and looking to, to make her life better. And Jesus says, you bring that false desire to me first. Which is interesting that Jesus takes our past into consideration in light of future redemption. Some of us like to think about salvation and redemption as if there's no history left for the soul to remember. Well, if anyone's in Christ, the old has gone, the new has come. That is not only theologically untrue, it's incredibly damaging, both to the doctrine of creation, that you are made in the image and likeness of God, the doctrine of sovereignty, that God himself has controlled your circumstances, and the doctrine of incarnation, that Jesus became an actual person to live and walk with us. It does violence to some core Christian doctrines to believe that our past no longer has any bearing on our future. Now, 
That doesn't mean we are held captive by that. That does not mean that we have to go back and repeat those same things, but the things that you are unaware of in your own heart and do not own will own you. And so you can have a desire to want to bring your whole life before God. You can have an intellectual priority of doing that, but there are some deeper things going on that keep us back from actually doing that. Which means the first thing we need to do is to be able to look back and see what God has already given us that's unique to us to bring to the table here. We accept these gifts as well as our limitations with grace, by faith, and because we're all human, we all have some of those limitations that are also part of looking back and realizing there are some things that other people might be able to do that are very difficult for me to do. <clears throat> so, a couple questions on looking back. What has the life I've lived tell me about myself? What does the life you've lived tell you about yourself? As you look back, and again, this is not something you're going to accomplish in whatever time we have left. So this is probably best to write down in the quietness of your own time with the Lord. Look back from a child on. What are some of those desires that have never seemed to go away? What has consistently been true about me? What are some aspects of my personality, no matter what I've done, have showed up again and again and again? And what unique life experiences do I have to bring to God and others for their benefit? What is it that I've walked and lived that I might be able to come alongside another person who's going through that and be able to give them some perspective? I just spent, on Friday, we had a teacher's luncheon at my kid's school where I teach, and I spent the whole lunch with 10 65-year-old women. And whenever I have that opportunity, they probably get sick of me, but I ask them a ton of questions. And I could have listened to them talk all day because they gave me a perspective I lack about what it's going to look and feel like when my kids are out of the house. And I just asked them, what are some things you wish you knew when you were 45? What are some things you wish you could have gone back and done differently? How can I benefit from those experiences that you've had? That's a huge way to bring your life to the table. And chances are, you did nothing to prepare for that. You just lived. And let's just be honest. We all just kind of drown through life <laughs> until someday we figure out, like, okay, I can breathe right now. I call that parenting. Like, it's just every day feels like you are drowning, and then you have more kids for some reason, and then it's like, <laughs> I, I, don't, I, I don't remember the last time I slept or thought or had a meal in silence. But I got a chance to listen to these 65-year-olds tell me how quiet their house was and how much they missed the noise. And listen, I got three boys. It's blood and tears and yelling and fighting and wrestling and anger all day. And so I was just coming off a particularly hard week where I was like, that sounds pretty good. And one of the women who was closer to her 70s said, it is really good for a couple minutes. 
and then the silence really begins to settle in. I just love that perspective. Looking back on the lives that we've lived, the second one is looking in. Only those who have brought the gospel to bear on their lives can recognize how Jesus both humbles us and exalts us. So look at this in verse 3. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. The gospel humbles us because we recognize that we are sinners, hopeless, without a savior. But the gospel also exalts us because Jesus loves sinners and has shed his blood to make us his own children. So it keeps us from a view of ourselves that's too low, I have nothing to give or offer, or too high, everyone needs what I have to give or offer. And it gives us that kind of sober recognition because Jesus set his love on me for a purpose. And the renewal of our minds is a slow, disruptive process that allows us to actually think differently about who we are. And this is framed around looking inward to see the kind of person that God has been developing in me. And I can tell you, over 20 years of full-time pastoral ministry has shown me more than anything else that some people master spiritual gifts and knowledge quicker than they master control of their own emotional life. And those people's gifts bring them to an environment where their souls are not strong enough to maintain and they shipwreck their lives. Pastor Jeff and I have watched this over and over and over again. There was a season in our own church planting network where there was a couple of suicides one after another. There were a couple of key pastors who all were falling and all of them were around my age. And I started paying attention to that. What's going on right now? Oh, we're middle-aged men. We all planted churches when we were 24 years old and strong and full of energy and boldness and just going to charge and take the hill. Now we hurt ourselves getting out of bed in the morning. (laughs) And all of that strength that we use to mask all of what's going on inside of us, you have to reckon with. There's a reason why midlife has this whole notion around of the midlife crisis, because that's the age you have to have a reckoning of the young man that you've been and the older man that you want to become. And there was some disconnect in all these guys where they were unwilling to look deeply at themselves and hear some hard truths. And so they doubled down on their skinny jeans and their skateboard and their flat build, and they tried to pretend they were still 25 years old. They weren't. And it's really difficult to come to grips with that. That requires us being renewed in our minds to think differently and honestly about who we are and what God has given us. Not one of those people shipwrecked their lives because of a lack of knowledge of God. Not one. Everyone shipwrecked their lives because they didn't know themselves. And so we have to pay attention to the lives that God has given us here because it's very difficult even in light of the culture that we're living in. Evangelical culture has placed a higher premium on knowing God than knowing ourselves, even though historically that's not true. 
when theologians began to systematize theology, there were two major buckets that they held up to God, theology, the knowledge of God, and anthropology, the study of man. And John Calvin, author of the Institutes of the Christian Religion, goes so far as to say, the knowledge of God and knowledge ourself are bound together by a mutual tie. Because any knowledge of God that doesn't lead to a knowledge of self is a curriculum for becoming a Pharisee. And any knowledge of self that doesn't first have at its core the knowledge of God is just shoegazing, navel, inward-looking meaninglessness. Self-help is what you get. And so those two need to be brought because walking in the light means paying attention to the shadows that it causes. And you have to be able to distinguish between the light and the shadow, or you're going to call shadow light and light shadow and have no idea what's up and what's down, what's right and what's wrong. So We have to pay attention and look inward. So here are some questions for you to be able to do that. What do I most deeply desire? It doesn't need to be with your life, just right now. What is it more than anything else I want? Don't forget your desires are not all bad, okay? Total depravity does not mean utter depravity, that we never have a positive desire in our lives. What am I most afraid of? What is it that I'm most afraid of right now? What makes me feel excited? What is it that like my spirit begins to quicken when I think about doing? Anxious, what makes me anxious? And is there something in my life right now that's keeping me from giving myself more fully to Jesus? Is there something that's very obvious in my life that is not pleasing to God that might be keeping me back from being able to evaluate what he wants to do? The third is we look around. Now, Paul goes on from this self-evaluation and after he talks about not thinking too highly of yourselves. He then says in verse 4, as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, and the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. He tells us just to look around because you do have something to offer to others and they have something to offer to you. That's the meaning of the body of Christ with all of these different body parts that come together. Avenues of service are all around you if you're paying attention. You don't have to look very far to evaluate the very people that God has in your life. And if we are loving God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, then loving your neighbor as yourself is going to be very easy when you recognize, and for some of you, your neighbor is currently living in your house. And for others, it's the church family or your work environment. Who is it that God has already placed around you? Human bodies need each part to function well in order to be healthy. And the same thing is true of a church body. Now, verses 4 and 5 give some different ways. That's not exhaustive. And I would encourage you to think outside of the biblical framework of just these are the only gifts that he's given. 
I think a lot of these are prescriptive more than descriptive. These are the six gifts. Choose one and that's it. Because you're not going to find a verse in the Bible that tells you God has tuned thy heart to work on sound team and make a joyful noise to the Lord. If I don't know. You're not going to find a verse where you're like, my calling is to help with sound. But you may just need to sign up for it. In our church, we used to call it, there, there's callings and there's chores. Right? And because you're part of a family, there's family chores. You don't need to get particularly excited about it because you're not going to find a verse that says, thou hast been tasked to care for other people's children in children's ministry, but there's a need and I like kids and I know how to handle them, so I could probably do that. But then there's also callings where this is a deep desire of yours and no matter what you do, you're going to express that vocation in it. You just look around to see what God has been able to put in front of you. The thing that makes this a little bit difficult is... Thomas Merton says, he calls the body of Christ the body of broken bones. And all of us are in various stages of our own healing with that broken bones, but it means that by coming into contact with that, it's going to elicit our own sense of suffering and solidarity with those around us. And so sometimes it's not even what you do in the church, it's just the fact that you're here, that you're present that you're around people. And that gives you a chance to look around. So list the first people that come to mind that are already a part of your life. How might you be able to offer something in your life on their behalf? And two, how can you move from receiving gospel ministry in the church to being a servant on behalf of others growing in the gospel? Now, similar to that, we're going to move fast, is looking outward. Looking outward are those who are not already in your sphere of influence, but could be. Um, the author Henry Nouwen has a, a quote about hospitality that has framed so much of my understanding of being with people. And he says, the goal of hospitality is to create a free space where the stranger can enter in and become a friend instead of an enemy. So good, right? The goal of hospitality is to create a free space. That is, you are a warm, receptive presence. You're a non-anxious or judgmental presence where people want to be around you. It's the creation of a free space where the stranger, those we don't yet know, can enter in and become a friend instead of an enemy. And then he goes on to say, hospitality is not meant to change people. Hospitality isn't the space for you to espouse all the advice that you've learned over the years, which no one really wants. That's some truth right there. It's a space where they can enter in with whoever they currently are at their stage of growth in Jesus, and Jesus can change them. And you just offer them the space to do that. That means looking outside our sphere of influence and thinking who those people are. So, where might God be calling you to show hospitality? There are people or places in your life where you may have not been the most receptive presence that you might want to consider. Which of your neighbors, coworkers, or other non-Christians in your life can you serve? Rather than judging them for their own poor life choices, which, if we're honest, all of us have our fair share, 
How can we serve them? Interesting, only Jesus ever did what was good, right, and perfect, but the most messed up people felt comfortable around him. Everybody I've ever known in my life has been less perfect than Jesus, safe to say. And yet some of those people I can't breathe around. As you learn of areas or people in deep need in your community, who might God be leading you to? There are children in our community, which we're going to be talking about later, that are deeply in need, not of your gifts or your, your, gifts or your talents, but your presence. Just showing up that love is possible to receive and you are worthy of it. Students both in middle school, high school, colleges, all around. If I were to poll this room, I bet at least a third of you, if not more, have a teacher that made one of the biggest impacts in your life in the past. Law enforcement, community workers, homeless. I mean, the, the areas of service in our, in our community are myriad. It's just a matter of determining what God might be calling you to. And the last thing is look up. <clears throat> if we are first and foremost presenting ourselves to God, then what God desires from our lives is of paramount importance. Not just what we think he wants of us, but actually knowing what he's doing. If he is a living sacrifice on our behalf, then it stands to reason that he has some work for our lives to do. And the last component is prayerfully listening to the voice of the Spirit who desires to reveal to you God's work. That's why he lives inside of you if you are a follower of Jesus. To be able to pay attention to what God has been trying to get your attention of. So we look up and ask, what does God want of you? That could be general and broad or it could be very specific. How is he calling you to steward your life? How is he calling you to not bury your treasure because it's not yours to bury? Looking back on your past experiences, present desires, and current opportunities, what might you be able to discern about God's will for your life? Looking back, Looking at the present, looking at the future, what is it that we might be able to discern with these minds that have been renewed to do that very thing, to understand the will of God? The last thing I want to say over time is this. <clears throat> the, the naturalist and author Ralph Waldo Emerson said that when you sow a thought, you reap an action. And when you sow an action, you reap a habit. And when you sow a habit, you reap a character. And what you sow with your character, you reap with your life. And the scary thing about that is that largely happens without us knowing. We'd like to think that our lives are the sum total of all the major things, the major events. But if I'm being honest, I on one hand can count the major events in my life. I met Jesus. He changed absolutely everything in every way. I met my wife and married way outside of my weight class, and she changed everything about the opportunities that I have because of how strong and gifted she is. 
I watch my children be born and come out of that wife. It changes you incredibly. That's nuts. And I remember being ordained and feeling like this is what I wanted to give my life to. That's about it. But my life is the sum total of the millions of mundane moments that didn't pass my radar, that didn't make me excited. It's the countless boring days when nothing much is happening and I still have to show up in my life that has actually made my life what it is. And so when we're talking about offering our lives to God, it's not just the big things in big ways. We're looking up to ask him, what right now? What is the first small step I might be able to take to do something different? Doesn't need to be major. Doesn't need to be, you need to be bleeding out and giving your life for it. Just what's one small thing that I might be able to do to align my life more fully with integrity with what God wants for me? So Father, I pray that you would help Generations Church to do that. I pray that you would help me to do that. And the um, beginning of every year is as good an opportunity as any to be able to think deeply about some of these things. I pray that you would be gracious to us as we try to bring our lives more fully and completely under your authority, under your love, and because of your grace.